0: The resurrection is so significant. The resurrection is so significant that the New Testament says this. If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Fatalism. Hedonistic fatalism is the solution. If there's no resurrection... Let's eat, let's drink, because tomorrow we're going to die. Answer to life, if there's no resurrection, fatalism. And fatalism, by definition, isn't an answer. Life is a waste. Life is meaningless. There is no hope if there's no resurrection. That's how boldly the Bible puts it. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The resurrection is of great, great, great significance. And so it's no mystery that this morning, today, on Easter Sunday, we'll talk about the resurrection. But perhaps we'll do it from some angles that aren't always uh, typical. We're going to look at the resurrection and facets of the resurrection that are sometimes overlooked but absolutely vital and necessary for us to understand Christianity and for us to find ourselves moved to be worshipers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the three facets we'll look at of the resurrection this morning are number one, Jesus' resurrection as representative. Representative is the first key word, and if that doesn't make a lot of sense to you, I think it will momentarily. The second facet of the resurrection that's often overlooked, that we'll look at this morning, that is vital, the resurrection of Jesus is more than spiritual. It is more than spiritual. The third often overlooked facet of the resurrection of Jesus that is vital and moves us to worship is the resurrection of Jesus as warning, as a warning. Warning. So we'll look at Jesus as our representative raised from the dead. We'll look at Jesus' resurrection as more than physical, or excuse me, more than spiritual. And then we'll also look at Jesus' resurrection as a warning. As it was originally and as it is even today. And once again, while these are often overlooked, they end up being basic Christianity, Christianity 101 sort of stuff. Uh, fundamental to Christianity. And they end up being those very things that when we understand them better, they move us to worshiping Jesus Christ, the resurrected one. Number one, Jesus' resurrection was representative. It was representative. And if you have a Bible, you can join me in looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15 and uh, once again, as I mentioned earlier in the service, you might be new to the Bible. Maybe we just put one in your hands this morning. And I believe there's a page number in the bulletin that corresponds with First with Corinthians 15. And you can go ahead and find that. But as you're finding First Corinthians, uh, let's talk about Jesus, the resurrected one, as our representative or the representative of believers. It becomes vital that you have somewhat of an understanding of this idea of representation in the Bible. If you're going to understand the storyline of the Bible and how it fits together and how it flows, you really have to understand something about representation. And you'll eventually see that it really becomes vital, hopefully helping you out with that. It's true. God God deals with individuals. Absolutely. We're thankful for that. And we see that in the Bible. He deals with us individually as individuals. But it's also crucial, if you're going to understand the big picture, the big storyline, God's plan, God's great drama, if you will, to understand this notion of representation. Someone standing and representing others. In fact, you could put it in these terms. From the very beginning to the very end, you could say, it's it's an oversimplification, you could say the Bible's about the tale of two Adams, the story of two Adams, as in the man's name, Adam. In Genesis we have Adam and Eve. And Adam is described, as we continue to read our Bibles, as the representative of the human race. Okay? He represents all of us. He was our representative and he led the human race into sin. Thanks a lot, great, 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 Adam you get the idea and then so crucial in understanding we have Jesus entering the scene and Jesus is called in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 the last adam sometimes we call him the second adam we're represented in the first adam and he led the human race in rebellion And then, for those who will trust in him, those who will believe in him, we are represented by a last Adam. Everyone is united to one or the other, even right now. You're either in Adam, the Bible says, united with Adam. We all start out there. Or by faith, you're united, or you're, as the Bible sometimes says, you're in Christ. You've been united to him by faith. And what we're going to see in 1 Corinthians is... Jesus raised from the dead as a representative on our behalf, on the behalf of believers, so that we can have an assurance, so that we can have a sure hope of being raised from the dead also. To understand the, the narrative, the drama, the story, you've got to understand representation. We're either in Adam or we're in Christ. And Christ wasn't just raised to show that he was who he said he was, although that's true. He wasn't only raised because he said he was going to be raised, although that's true. There are multiple facets, but one facet we need to look at this morning that's often overlooked is he was raised on our behalf as our representative so that we can have the assurance of resurrection ourselves. And this is good news. This is delightful. That's why we come to worship. Sometimes we forget why we've come to worship. Why are we doing this? And maybe it's because we've forgotten representation. And so let's see one Corinthians fifteen. Let's let's sample it and look at verses twenty to twenty-three. I commend the whole thing to you, and I would like you to look for one word. It occurs in two places, and the, the the key word in this text for representation is the word first fruits, first fruits. And we'll talk about what that means. But it's a word of representation. Let's go ahead and look at verse twenty of one Corinthians fifteen. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, dealing with all the controversy in Corinth because maybe he didn't really rise from the dead. Maybe it's just a spiritual reality. Maybe it's not actual. And Paul has to say, no, he, in, in fact Christ has been raised from the dead and then he's described in this wonderful way the first fruits. That's representation of those who have fallen asleep, which is a nice way of saying of those who have died. It's a euphemism. He's the first fruits. This is borrowed from the Old Testament. If, he, if he's the first fruits, that means there's a whole lot of other fruit right? If he's the first fruits, that means, yeah, he's the best, we could say. He has preeminence, we might say. But if he's the first fruits, that means he's, and I mean this in all the best senses, he's just a sampling. This is just the beginning of more. If someone were to make an offering in the Old Testament and they're to offer the first fruits of their harvest, It means there's a whole lot of harvest, but they're giving their best, the preeminence of it, to God. But there's a whole lot where that came from. So Jesus, as our representative, is the first fruits. Which gives us hope, because that means there's a whole lot more. Translation, that's our hope. That's us. Let's keep reading. Verse 21. For as by a man... This is referring to Adam, according to the flow of the context. By a man... That's representation, came death by a man. Now we're talking about Christ, Jesus, the man. By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. See, representation. Verse 22, for as in Adam all die, united to Adam, in union with Adam, in Adam all die, so also in Christ, which happens by faith, shall all be made alive. Verse 23, we'll see first fruits again. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So resurrection comes for us later at his coming. This becomes marvelous. This is, this is why the reality of representation is not a yawning kind of theological thing to debate about. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ by faith. If you're in Christ by faith, you've got to be rejoicing in the reality that He's the first fruits of the resurrection, which means if I'm in Him and united to Him, I'll be resurrected too. Just like, not overemphasizing it, just like He was raised from the dead. And this is why Christians have been celebrating Easter. Better yet, resurrection Ever since it happened. Because we are so thankful and delighted that we have a representative. That that we've been represented by the last Adam. That we're no longer in Adam, united to the first Adam. But in the last Adam, there is solidarity. There is unity. He's representative of the total harvest. He's the initial portion of the whole. Isn't this great? There's another title that's used of Jesus that's another representation title that's worth seeing that we overlook sometimes and really shouldn't, and that's the title Firstborn. Let's turn to Romans, which is just back one book to the left of 1 Corinthians. In Romans chapter 8, Jesus in the context of resurrection and in the context of representation is called the firstborn. Now, I'm going to stump you here. I'm sure you're all going to get this wrong. But, you know, was Jesus the first person to ever been born? You say, of course not. He's not the first person who's ever been born. But he's called the firstborn because the first one raised from the dead, victorious from the grave. And so as the firstborn, that's assuming there's going to be more raised. And then he expands it to include all those who are in union with him. All those who are united with him by faith. Let's see it in Romans chapter 8 verse 29. In Romans 8 29 It says, for those whom He foreknew, talking about He being the Father in this context, those whom He foreknew or set His love upon ahead of time, this is before time begins, He also predestined, it says, to be conformed to the image of His Son. How is that going to happen? He's going to tell us, in order that He might be, He now being the Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. You could say firstborn, that means he's priority. Absolutely. But what delights me right now and right here is he's the firstborn among many brethren, many others. He's our representative. It's fantastic. It's magnificent. Jesus, as the last Adam, is my great elder brother and your great elder brother. Now there are other titles for Jesus and, and that's not the only title but that's one title that's very legitimate because he became one of us. Just as Adam was one of us, he becomes one of us and he's the first born from the dead. Ah, Here's where it's good news. Among many brothers. This is an resurrection reality this is a Easter Sunday kind of reality that we have another representative other than the first Adam who led us into sin we have a victorious resurrected Adam who leads us in new life in so many ways to understand heads or tails in the biblical narrative is to understand representation Because everyone starts out in Adam, united to Adam. This is also in Romans 5. And by faith, by trust, by dependence in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're united to Him and you're in Him instead. And yes, there's individual relationship with God and all of that is absolutely true but to be quite blunt there is no individual positive relationship with god apart from a positive relationship with god through the representative whose name is jesus this is a gospel reality it's a good news kind of reality if you're still in romans chapter 8 if you go to 8 uh, chapter 8 verse 11 is a delightful delightful uh, statement regarding this also it says if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and he's assuming this is true of all Christians, he who raised Jesus, Christ Jesus from the dead will also, here's the guarantee moment, will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And that's where you, you say, yeah! That's the kind of representative I need. And if the Spirit of God raised Jesus from the dead and I'm united to Jesus, then that's a guarantee that I'm going to be raised from the dead. And then I have a charismatic moment like I'm having right now. Fittingly so. I mean, if that doesn't stir your heart, nothing will. Won't. To think I'm not under the condemnation I was under when I was united to Adam, but I have the guarantee of resurrection because I'm in Christ. And as sure as he was raised from the dead as my first fruits, or as the first fruits, as my great elder brother, and your great elder brother if you're a believer in Christ, he leads the family in new life. You can bank on that one. It's delightful. It's why we worship Jesus. It's why we worship Him. He's our hope. He's our resurrection. Let's move on to another facet of resurrection that sometimes is overlooked but really becomes basic and, and fundamental and important. And that is that Jesus' resurrection is more than spiritual. I'm not suggesting it's less uh, that it's less than spiritual, but it's more than spiritual and we forget about this sometimes. Yes, it's true. Jesus represents... The believing human race. He represents everyone, everywhere who would ever believe. Yes, that's true. And it's in a spiritual sense. Under the condemnation. Under the wrath of God. Because of spiritual rebellion. That's absolutely true. He reconciles us to God. By his atoning death. By his perfect representation. By all that he does. That's all true. But sometimes we forget or overlook. That Jesus wasn't a mere spirit being. Sometimes we forget that Jesus was a human being like you and like me. A real human being. Measurable DNA. He was not a phantom. He was the opposite of what certain Greek philosophers would have said. Jesus was not the Savior of Gnosticism, if you'd like to use a fancy ism that would come shortly after his time. Matter, bad. Spirit, good. Me, Tarzan. (laughs) Okay. But ever since the beginning of Christianity, the Bible spoken to this matter. We're going to see it in John in a moment. You can turn to John now if you'd like to as a sampling, or we could go to First John. But ever since the beginning of Christianity, this has been something that's been, been thought about and had to be defended, that Jesus is God, yes. But Jesus is also a real human being. So Gnosticism is going to, to attack that. Certain Greek philosophies would attack that. And it's still attacked today. That somehow Jesus was the spirit being savior guy, spiritually raised from the dead, taking care of everything spiritually, but he was not actually a physical human being. He wasn't actually one of us. And by the way, God is not just pro-spirit, anti-matter God likes matter. He created it. Okay? From the very beginning, when God creates everything that is, including the physical, He pronounces the whole thing what? Good. It's good. In fact, then He goes on to say it's very good. God likes matter. Matter matters to God. Pun intended. And it matters to us also. Because we're not only spiritual beings, though we are spiritual beings. We are also physical beings. And I say hallelujah, what a Savior, that we have a Savior who is not merely rising spiritually. He's arisen physically, guaranteeing if He's first fruits, if He's firstborn, and I'm united to Him by faith, I'm going to be physically resurrected unto newness of life also. And if this isn't very important to you, you're probably really young or really healthy. First hour, they thought that was funny. You're more sophisticated than they are. And now you're more gracious because you're giving me courtesy laughs. Thank you. It's Easter. Thanks for the love. I'm feeling the love. (laughs) In John chapter 1, we see Jesus is a human being. And then he's going to be crucified as a human being. And then he's going to be raised from the dead bodily, physically, as a human being. So let's see John 1. John 1, one. we know it's referring to Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So whoever this Word is, we know who the Word is because he's described as God. And then it fills out a little bit more in John 1.14. In John 1.14, we're just surveying this, looking at his birth as an actual birth. And the word became flesh. So the one who is God, according to one, 1 became flesh. That, that, that is a huge statement. That's anti-Gnostic. That's anti-certain Greek philosophy. He's saying God became a human being. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He so became flesh. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And we could just start working our way through John, and, and nothing goes to the contrary. He really is a human being. He's more than a human being. This is why Christians for, for a long, long time now have said, Jesus is 100% God, and He's 100% man. And if you can figure that out, you're lying. Okay? We, we don't have anybody to compare that to. But he's really God and really man. First John, we're not going there, goes to great lengths to defend the reality of his real humanity, because if we don't have a real human savior, then we're in trouble. Because we really are human. We really are physical and not just spiritual. Well, let's fast forward now to John nineteen and we're going to see he was physically crucified. It wasn't uh, something only spiritual, though I I would suggest to you that the the great emphasis is what happened there spiritually, but we, we see that so often. This morning I'm drawing attention to the fact that it's physical history in time and space. We won't even take the time to read John 19. We're going to read from chapter 20 in a moment, but I at least want you to see all of that data that's there before your eyes, and we're just looking at one of the four historic accounts that he really was a person who really was killed. If you looked long enough, you could see Pontius Pilate described there. It's so interesting to me. The Apostles' Creed that Christians have been repeating for a long time, since probably, I don't know if it's 4th century when it, when it started. In the Apostles' Creed, it says Jesus was what crucified under pontius pilate how'd you like to be pontius pilate all those years people saying it over and over and over and over again it's pretty significant though jesus was physically murdered jesus was a real person jesus was a human being he was more than spiritual he was physical too and he was crucified under pontius pilate he was so physical it's important that we remember this because again we're physical with all of its brokenness a real person just as a, a somewhat related tangent regarding this let me just ask you this question what if what if he really wasn't physical What does that do to Christianity, by the way? Well, what if Jesus really didn't exist as a real human being with flesh and bone and blood and DNA? What does it do to Christianity? There are certain religions of the world that would say even if their documents are not historically reliable or true, the genuineness of their religion is still true. The authors of the New Testament go on record as saying, if ours is not historically legitimate and historically physically genuinely true, then we of all people are most to be pitied. The whole thing is a sham. The genuineness of Christianity according to the Christian documents themselves say it's either physical and real or it's all a joke. This one's interesting to me because for years... Opponents of the Bible sought to undermine the authenticity of Christianity uh, because they said there's no such person to have ever lived uh, in the Middle East known as Pontius Pilate. And I suppose some Christians would say, well, it doesn't really matter. Don't confuse us with the facts. We know what we believe. That wouldn't have been Paul's take according to 1 Corinthians 15 if there is no such thing as Pontius Pilate. It's all a fairy tale we're living in narnia it's made up just a little advice to you archaeology ends up catching up with the bible some level-headed christians could say well we might not have archaeological proof now but we're not going to give it up as historical accurate accurate it's interesting you go to israel today some of you have been there and if you're like me you go with your unbelieving jewish guide And my guide, last time, some of you were there, he was thrilled and delighted at Caesarea, or Caesarea, as he would say. Caesarea by the sea. Not Caesarea Philippi, different place. Caesarea by the sea, and he's so excited because here's the inscription proving the historical authenticity of Pontius Pilate. Because for years, so many said the Bible can't be true because there's never been such a person, and I want you to see this inscription. I don't remember now. Typically, it's not actually real because if it's real, more often than not, they put it in the museum. So you get to see the fake version. It's either in the museum in Israel or in the British Museum. (laughs) Because the Britons used to run the world and rule the world. Anyway, totally off track. Um, If you want to see the world, don't see the world. Just go to London. (laughs) Because they've stolen everybody's good stuff. That's why there are people outside picketing wanting their stuff back. Um, you, you go to the British Museum and you're thinking, looking around, wow, this is King Ahasuerus' palace walls. Why is it in London? <laughs> but it's pretty cool uh, from the Middle East that uh, Queen Esther would have seen this, and I can just go see it all um, in London. But none of this has anything to do with Easter. And yet it does, because what we're talking about is Jesus really physically becoming one of us really genuinely physically being crucified under Pontius Pilate a historic figure and then just as he was really born really died he really resurrected it's on the same plane now we go from John 19 to John 20 look with me if you would we already read it in scripture reading verse 24 now Thomas one of the twelve called the twin was not with them when Jesus came This is the infamous Doubting Thomas that we like to throw under the bus. But I'm really glad for Doubting Thomas because he's going to demand the physical. So, verse 25 says, So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Let me just insert something wrong here and just say. And so they told him, it may not be historical and genuine, but if you believe in your heart, it'll be so. No! And I'm so glad that's not the case. I love doubting Thomas. I love it that he says, I I need historic reality, genuine, or I don't buy it. He sounds a lot like the Apostle Paul does later in 1 Corinthians 15. And so we go on. What a great guy this guy is. Verse 26, eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. He's not a phantom. He's not a figment of imagination. He's not what you believe in your heart like Narnia. And see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Believe in historic Actuality that's physical. Verse 28, Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. But Jesus is not saying, Blessed are those who have not seen things that never actually happened and believed. It's not the case. Let's make sure we look at this facet of the resurrection that says, Jesus is, yes, spiritual absolutely but he's more than that and we need him to be more than that because we're more than that we won't take the time to go there but colossians 1 15 to 20 helps us out with this as well he's the firstborn from the dead Reconciling a physical universe to himself. Romans chapter 8 supports this as well. We live in a broken world. The broken world is going to be fixed, not by a phantom Jesus, but by a Jesus who became part of this broken world so that he would redeem it and he would bring about resurrection in it. He's a real person. Just one more thing regarding this. On a practical level, why is this something that, that would would be exciting? Why is this something that would be important? Oh, yes, it's biblical, and that should be enough to get us excited. But the reality is it's exciting and important because, as I just said, you're not only physical, or you're not only spiritual. You're physical. You need a Savior who was more than a spirit being. You need a Savior who was a human being like you, raised from the dead bodily. If you're going to have any hope of being raised from the dead bodily. And here he is, the first fruits, the firstborn, And I say, yes! And the older you get, and the more suffering you go through, on a practical level, the more important it becomes. When I die as a Christian, if you just do me a favor, this is culturally I'm going to rub you the wrong way, perhaps, but. I would prefer that you didn't say I passed away. I'm not absolutely sure of this, but multiple indicators would credit, at least for popularizing the phrase that we all say because it's politically correct. I say it too. It may very well be the person who popularized the phrase passed away for death is Mary Baker Eddy the founder of Christian Science which is kind of like grape nuts it's neither grape nor nuts Christian Science is neither Christian nor science Mary Baker Eddy didn't believe in death she was Gnostic like she didn't believe in sickness no one gets sick no one dies they haven't interviewed her lately on the radio on the Christian science monitor. I suppose it's because she's dead. You can say I passed away. I don't mind. It's what we say in our culture. But I at least wanted you to be thinking about this reality. It's not that you just pass away. We're physical beings and we die As physical beings As well as spiritual beings One of my favorite ways To talk about Christians I don't do it every time But I try to I don't always have the nerve It's not offensive I just don't always have the the nerve As I like to say Yeah she went to heaven and given the opportunity, I like to elaborate. And if someone if it gets their attention, she went to heaven, and, and she's waiting for her glorified body, her resurrected body. I met a lady the other day at the grocery store, at the postal part, and her name was Carla, Carla with a C, just like my mom. And I said, "Hi, Carla with the C. I like Carla with the C. My mom's name is Carla." Oh, really? Where's your mom? Blah, blah, blah. My mom's in heaven. Hmm. I don't know. It didn't lead to further conversation, but it's one of those kind of th- kinds of things that can a lot easier than she passed away. She's out of existence. Pleasant nothingness. Physical being like you and like me. Awaiting a glorified, perfected body. Because of the physical resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, resurrected not just so we would pass away, annihilationism or something, so that we'd be raised from the dead. First fruits, firstborn among many brothers. This is wonderful. Pass away, shmas away. We have a hope in a real person. Not in our imaginations. Who was really raised bodily from the dead. You don't get that on reality TV. (laughs) Let's move on now and end on number three. A third facet would be Jesus' resurrection was a warning. It was a warning. and Acts chapter 17 is where we see this. If you're still in Romans, you can turn back one book to the book of Acts in the 17th chapter, and we'll look at this one just briefly. I can almost not resist on Easter Sundays um, mentioning this, uh, just because it's so often overlooked. When Jesus was raised from the dead... God was using it to do many things. One of the things He was doing was putting the world on notice that judgment is coming. And we need to know that. And you say, that's not a very happy message. Take it up with God. (laughs) And by the way, I'm not so compelled to trust in the risen Savior if there's nothing to be afraid of anyway. I'm just going to pass away. But if the risen Savior is both a savior and a judge to those who don't trust him, and he really physically rose again from the grave, I have some motivation. And this is one of the reasons, one of the reasons we overlook. So this is going to be good uh, dinner table conversation, pass the ham kind of stuff. I learned about one of the reasons why Jesus rose from the grave. What is that? To, To judge rebels, and God proves it by raising him from the dead. And now for the salad. (laughs) But how are we going to understand the good news if we don't understand the problem of the bad news? We're not. So you can thank me later for equipping you for a good conversation today at lunch. Acts 17, verse 30. We're rudely interrupting Paul's sermon here, but I at least want to tell you he's talking to, to pluralists, pluralistic culture. He's not talking to Jews. He's talking to people who believe in many different kinds of gods. And um, he's going to be very broad and inclusive and in talking to broad-minded, inclusive people. And so he, he's being all thanks to all people. You watch. He says in verse 30, partially through the verse, but now he, God, commands all people. Oh, he's so inclusive, right? Broad-minded. It doesn't get more broad-minded than that. all people everywhere, God says, he commands them to repent. How about that? I'm going to include everybody in this. I want everyone to repent. Which first and foremost, most basically means to change your mind. You better change your mind, specifically in this context, about who Jesus is. You better stop thinking that that he was a mere prophet. You better stop thinking that he was a mere man or merely God or whatever it might be. You need to believe the truth about Jesus. So he's calling everyone everywhere to repent. Verse 31, here's why. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world He's offending them by that too, by the way, because He's fixed a day. So we have a God who works linearly in time, but that's for another discussion. He has fixed a day day on which He will judge the world in righteousness, in in fairness, in justice, by a man whom He has appointed, and of this He has given assurance to all, also inclusive, by raising Him from the dead. How about that for an eye-opener? You're on notice. Oh, I wish he was a phantom. (laughs) He's a man. The man Christ Jesus. And he's been raised physically from the dead. To be the hope of those who trust in him. But to be the judge of those who don't. Pretty intense. And by the way, now you have a little bit better understanding of why every year, it's just a cycle, you can set your calendar by it. Time and Newsweek and whatever these periodicals come out, February or March, and it always has something to do, something about the lack of historicity, the lack of genuineness. Scholars have discovered, typically it's old scholarship, by the way, but scholars have discovered this new thing that Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead happens every year. You know, which just shows how smart we are. (laughs) The authors might not even know it, but I would suggest to you, there's motivation in it. They need Jesus to not have risen from the dead. There's a spiritual underlying motivation behind it all. Because if he rose from the dead and you've not bowed the knee to acknowledge him as king of kings and lord of lords and as your atoning sacrifice, you are smoked. And the resurrection proves you are smoked. And this is why for years now I've been suggesting people work on PhDs and work hard at disproving the historical account of the Bible and the physical resurrection of Jesus if you've not repented. You need him to be dead you need him to be like the buddha you need him to be like another prophet because one thing you can't afford to have is him as a judge which is one of the reasons god raised him from the dead That's not good news. That's not a good Easter message. But it really does in all sincerity prepare you for good news. The hope is in Acts 17. The command is repent. And if you keep reading, some do. And they believe in Jesus. They trust in Jesus. Some reject. Some say Paul's out of his mind. As he knew they would. But still others. How about this? Same message. Still others repent and believe in Jesus. Just as some of you will reject it. And some of you will embrace it. Same message. It's the same message. And it is good news to know that we have an elder brother if we are believers who has already conquered death and suffering. And he himself is the leader, and He's already gone before us. And so we trust in Him. And we point others to Him. But we're talking about life and death issues. Really important stuff. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank You for the Lord Jesus Christ and for the great love which You showed us in Him. That You did the one and only thing that ever cost You Anything. that you you gave your unique Son to be a satisfaction for our sins and to to lead us in resurrection. We are grateful for Him and we are grateful to you for providing atonement and and providing new life in Jesus. And and may we be the kinds of people who, who are burdened to speak of these things and to speak of them lovingly and clearly and yet, truthfully, truthfully, Because the one thing we don't want is to be judged in righteousness. And so we're glad for a Savior, Jesus, who has already been judged in righteousness. He, the righteous one. And Lord, now as we take uh, bread, and as we take wine, and as we eat, and as we drink, as you yourself have commanded us, may we remember our great representative, our great Savior, Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.